0: Greetings, this is Cantus Firmus. I'm Cody Cook, and I'm talking with Tom Gilson, Christian apologist, senior editor at the news and commentary website The Stream, and author of numerous books, including the recent Too Good to be False, How Jesus' Incomparable Character Reveals His Reality. He can also be found at uh, thinkingchristian.net. How's it going, Tom?
1: It's going well. It's good to be here with you, Cody. Good to
0: be talking with you. Yeah, we we had some trouble getting getting our ducks in a row to do this conversation, so I'm glad we're able to make it happen.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs)
0: So in the intro, I I called you an apologist, and I I think a lot of my listeners are kind of more theologically oriented, but some may not be that familiar with the term. Um, And so um, can you kind of explain what an apologist does and why apologetics you think is important? Because some people don't like it very much. Some People who are either more mystical or more progressive in the Christian movement give give apologetics kind of a bad name.
1: Yeah, well, apologetics is a branch of theology, actually. It's the study of reasons and of uh, explanations that support confidence in the truth of the Christian faith, the truth, the goodness, and the beauty, everything that I think ties together that would help people to be confident that it is uh, a faith that we can put our trust in. So it, it ranges everything from historical reasons for belief in Christ to philosophical reasons why there must be a God to existential uh, kinds of experiential reasons why uh, <clears throat> why life makes sense with God and doesn't make sense without God. It is it it matters for numerous reasons. One is evangelism. People simply have questions and apologetics. And one level is the study of how to answer people's questions about why should I believe in Jesus. It matters for people who are following Christ when they're gaining a sense of confidence. There's a a great quote from Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, where he says that something like this, that for the mass of people in the pew, there's this uneasy sense that for the people in the know, uh, the way of Jesus Christ is simply foolish. And the, the truth is that for those who are in the know, the way of Jesus Christ actually makes All kinds of good sense. Well, if you're worried that the faith is foolish, that's not going to strengthen your confidence in Jesus. It's not going to strengthen your faith. So apologetics can build your faith. And in these days when the faith is under increasing attack, there is more anti-Christian hostility in the Western world than we have ever experienced before. This is a time when people need that confidence because it. Provides one further, and I think, very solid answer to the question: uh, When, with all that's going on, and with all the pressures, why should I still believe? And the answer to that it has multiple forms, but one of them is because there are really good reasons for faith in Jesus Christ.
0: Well, and you use the word reasons, and you know, uh, I've heard a lot of folks kind of like appealing to uh, Kierkegaard every time, every time a a liberal kind of theological, someone not liberal politically, but liberal theologically brings up Kierkegaard. I'm like, okay, hunker down. Um, (laughs) because, because it's usually this kind of idea that faith, uh, is supposed to be something that you do. Um, uh, it's, it's an act of the will, right. right? And so if you have good reasons for it, then it's not really faith anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, but, but, but no, I, I think I agree with you that, um, you know, um, well, as Lewis says, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, um, uh, theists will have doubts, but also atheists will have doubts. They'll have moments where they start to think that maybe this this God thing makes sense. Uh, and they'll sort of rely on what they, they think their arguments or reasons for, for not believing that. And they'll sort of go, okay, okay, well, I don't, I don't want to go there. So right. I've got my good reasons to them uh, why I don't believe that. And I think something similar can be said for a Christian. If a Christian feels like they have good reasons to hold on to faith, Um, then those moments where faith can be more difficult uh, can be a little easier to traverse. Uh, You know, for me in particular moments of suffering where, where where maybe God seems more quiet um, remembering, for example, the reasons that I believe in the resurrection of Jesus uh, can kind of help me through those, those more difficult times. So I I think there's value in
1: it. It, Yeah. It's support and the pressure time. There is, it's, it's especially common among atheists, but the, there is also among Christians this sense, as you put it, something like, if there are reasons, it isn't faith. Or as the atheist would like to put it, as faith is believing when you don't have reasons, when you don't have mm-hmm. evidence, when you don't have proof. But the uh, the historic meaning of the word faith is completely the opposite of that. It's, it's almost silly when you think of it. Jesus in... Acts 1-3, it says that he presented himself alive with many convincing proofs. If faith is belief without evidence, then what Jesus was doing by giving evidence was destroying faith, mm-hmm. which is absurd. It's just silly. The The whole idea that faith is believing without proof or believing without evidence, the the, the original statements on it, I can trace back to Mark Twain and Ambrose beers who were both humorists in the 19th century and not what you would consider your best sources for advice on theological matters. Just not.
0: Or, or, or linguistics, right? right? faith is uh, believing what you know ain't so, right? Right. 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 Yeah. 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 Uh, well, I, I, I had another something else that you said sparked something else in me, but then I, I think I may have forgotten what it was. Um, but all right. uh, but yeah, and, and I think you've also done some work on, uh, there was this, a skeptic named Peter Bogosian who sort of uh, trafficked in some similar arguments about faith.
1: He did, um, yes. And, yeah. and not very sensibly, I'm sad to say. Uh, and I've got a book on him, just kind of an informal ebook called Peter Bogosian: Atheist mm-hmm. Tactician. He's a good, very good uh, student of persuasion theory. But his explanation of what faith is all about is dependent on a false conception of what faith is. So he goes around destroying faith that isn't faith. Faith that really is faith is is built on strong foundations, and his methods are no no attack against it.
0: Well he was kind of popular in the vlogosphere for a while because he was a professor who was basically saying I'm going to make your kids into atheists.
1: Yep. Uh, but I think
0: he's sort of since moved on a little bit into uh, some of this kind of uh attacking wokeness. <laughs> right. on the in the academic sphere, right? And he's doing that uh, think-
1: in a, in a good way actually in partnership with friends of mine and Rachel Christie uh Christian and atheist together going around team teaching on the um uh, on the on what objective reality is and how we need to be looking for it. They have different, uh, they they think they found different things, but they're at least looking for objective reality and, and they're doing it together. And I love it.
0: Well, and I think he, he's one of, I believe he's one of the atheists who've recently made sort of statements along the lines of, uh, you know, I thought kind of fundamentalist Christianity was bad, but when you start hanging out with this, these kind of left-wing academics, you sort of see uh, what, what this kind of, uh, Faith based, uh, yeah. so to speak, uh, thing really looks like that's right. Um, anyway, it's, it's pretty. It's just interesting, a rabbit trail. Yeah, that's all right. I think uh, uh, th- there was a kind of an informal debate with Richard Dawkins and John Lennox, where Dawkins was arguing for the kind of faith is uh, believing what you know ain't so definition, and Lennox asked him, "Do you have faith in your wife?" And Richard Dawkins said, "Of course." And he says, "Do you have any reasons for that?" <laughs> And uh, Dawkins kind of got flustered. But anyway, it, it does show that it's th- these kind of very paltry, um, you know, kind of really stupid uh, arguments about linguistics that I'm going to sort of argue you out of the faith by defining a word in a way that you don't agree with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty silly.
1: And an interesting thing, if I can just one more thing about apologetics is, again, I, th- I think we are moving into a period when anti-Christian hostility is rising. And when people are more and more being faced with things like crises of conscience, should I uh, go along with whatever? There's I, You could finish that sentence a lot of different ways. Should I and or should I follow Jesus? The things that will strengthen a person or, or will strengthen a body of Christ in these things are many. It's not just reasons. It's also things like having a good walk with Christ, you know, Being a person of prayer, being in community, doing outreach, doing service, being in worship. Um, These things all matter, too. But apologetics, Mm -hmm. reasons for the faith, is on the list along with them. It's just interesting to me that all the things that I think you could name that are strengtheners of faith are commonly taught in the church, maybe even commonly practiced in good places. But apologetics tends to be left out. So it's not the most important thing that we need in order to strengthen our faith in this new age, but it's the most important thing that's conspicuously missing. And I would like to see people pick up on that and, and shore that up along with the other important aspects of Christian yeah. discipleship.
0: Well, and, Good, good, yeah. Um, so in, in apologetics, I mean, c- comes from this Greek word apologia, which means defense. Right. So it's, we've kind of talked about that aspect of it, giving a defense for the faith, but you, you kind of were hinging at the other side of that, that defense coin, which is persuasion. Mm -hmm. And then on the one hand, we're trying to give Christians, uh, you know, a defense or for what, what they believe, right. Because people come to faith for lots of reasons and, uh, having a relationship with God may not always be something that, that happens because you you read this, you know, something by William Lane Craig or some other apologist, Mm -hmm. it it could be very experiential or personal, but then once you're there, you might think, well, do I have good reasons for believing this? So apologetics comes into that, right? Um, but there's also this outside perspective too that we are trying to persuade others, and persuasion is something we do with words, but also in a lot of cases, it's it's we do it by living a better life um, or living a something a different kind of life maybe than than, they, than folks might see elsewhere. Yes, um, which which actually I'm kind of a person that there's there's an idea for a book I want to kind of work on, and maybe I'll talk to you about it. Which is uh, what I think is actually often tossed off as not a very significant apologetics issue, which is bad Christians, um, because we can sort of say, well, yeah, they're bad Christians, but, um, you know, that, that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, true and fair. Uh, but there is this sort of question of if we're supposed to be living with the Holy Spirit in us and being sanctified, uh, what happens when you don't see evidence of that in, in a lot of Christians? So that's something I, I'd like to work yeah. on with you maybe in the future. Exactly.
1: About. And the, the, the question in apologetics and in the world today is not what it used to be when, when I was in college, for example, the question was, is, was really, can we count on Christianity being true? Do we have reasons Mm. to believe it's true? The question is shifted now. And I've been seeing this Mm. for five or 10 years. I'm hearing other apologists recognize it now too. The question now isn't uh, whether Christianity is true. The question is whether Christianity is good. Are our moral principles good? Are we, are, are, are we, Um, anti-this, anti-that, are we anti-intellectual, are we anti-gay, are we the kind of people you want to hang around with? And And if we're not the kind of people you want to hang around with, people are going to have trouble accepting Christ because it comes as a package. So we need to have an apologetic for the goodness of Christianity, which comes in two sides. The first side is we have to be good. I mean, if Christianity is good, we ought to live as good people in all kinds of ways, especially self-sacrificial love. But we also need to be able to explain why it is, for example, that marriage as defined in the Bible is a good thing. And why, why it's good to follow Jesus. Why, why we're confident that he knew what he was doing when he gave us his principles for living, those kinds of things.
0: Yeah. Good. Awesome. Well, um, I, I, Want to talk a little about apologetics generally, but I also wanted to talk to you about your book, uh, Too Good to Be False, and I see you've got it behind yeah. you as well, um, which I got on paperback but was released on Kindle a little bit later. And, and folks who are like maybe me uh, have a, will buy a paperback book and have a hard time finding time to pick it up and read it. Uh, it also is, was recently released on Kindle, which is really great because you can read it on the go or do the text to speech if you've got a Kindle fire or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I think I got part of the way through it and then had a baby and and kind of <laughs> had to slow down. I had to come back and revisit sure. it once it hit kindle so it's it is in both formats, which is really which is really great but um the book is too good to be false how jesus's incomparable character reveals his beauty sorry reality I read it wrong his reality um so um can you kind of help me understand briefly what is the argument that you're making in the book
1: yeah it it's a uh two part argument with a third part that follows as an application the the two parts of it are that first of all that Jesus is incomparable and by incomparable what i mean is the character of Jesus as a character in a story you could you could compare him to people in literature, you compare him to people in history. You could go as far as comparing him to people in mythology or in Marvel movies or whatever. and you won't find anyone remotely like Jesus. And <clears throat> pardon me, his difference is it's on multiple dimensions. He's an unusual character in eight or ten. Uh, there's probably ways that I haven't begun to even to, to see even though I've been studying hard to, to discover these things. And that's, that's kind of the setup. Jesus as a character in literature is absolutely extraordinarily unique. By the way, they used to say, and this year, the Oxford English Dictionary said, it's okay. They used to say you cannot use superlative words for unique, like more unique because unique is just unique. Well, Well, the dictionary now gives you permission. What, I, what I mean by more unique is he's unique to a more extraordinary degree and in more ways than he is incredibly unique in, in literature. Now that, that's, a a, a datum that comes straight out of the story as we have it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are, those are uh, four versions of one story and the, the question that follows with a unique character like him is where did he come from? Stories come from somewhere. Where did he come from? We have an explanation as Christians, which is that the stories um, that we've got four different angles or facets to look at the true report of a life that was lived by this actually extraordinary person. The, Other explanation on record, the one that skeptics tend to put forward, is that Jesus, that character, is the product of a long period of evolutionary development where communities of faith, um, after Jesus died, came up with this character as a way of, well, we can get into why they would do it and how they did it, but that he is the product of legend. And so the question that I ask in this book is, Does the legendary development process explain the result? Does the cause explain the effect? Could the character of Jesus have been produced by this legendary process? A lot of atheists will look at the plot points and they'll say, well, there are dying and rising gods. Um, And they'll throw out parallels, which, by the way, aren't very good, but they'll throw it out anyway. They'll look at little points of apparent contradiction, like how many angels were at the tomb. And they'll say, look, see, it's, it's, it's all mixed up. And I say, let's forget the plot points. Look at the character of Jesus. And that's where you find the uniqueness. And that's where I think the strength of this argument rests. Well,
0: and so as I read it, I I think the, the, the title of it kind of summarizes too good to be false, how Jesus incomparable character reveals his reality. And, and the argument you're essentially making has to do with the fact that, um, the details of Jesus's life, uh, although extraordinary, uh, this extraordinariness doesn't point to its unreality, mm-hmm. but in, instead to its reality. And, um, you're kind of tapping into a history because this is, you're sort of adapting an argument that has made, been made before, but not very much recently. Um, and so I was curious kind of about uh, if you could go into a little bit, a little bit of the history of the argument, why you think it's fallen out of favor and why you uh, why you found it persuasive. And think it yeah, be
1: for me, it was something that I, I developed and I don't know how I don't know where a lot of ideas that I have come from, honestly, <clears throat> but it goes back uh, eight years or so ago. I started looking at the, the kind of person Jesus was and. Uh, I asked the question, and I started asking this actually in groups of people in, in conferences and in and in classrooms. I said, let's just think in both literature and history, other than Jesus, who can you think of who is incredibly powerful? And people would say anything from Zeus to Thanos to Genghis Khan to Bill Gates to, to Superman. Yes, there you go. Thank you. And I'd um, and say, who is... And that's one list. And I would write it down on one side of a chalkboard or a whiteboard. And then I say, now let's think of who in, in history or in literature is incredibly giving and other-centered and and loving. And people would say Mother Teresa or Gandhi or my favorite answer ever was mom. And, and I'd say, let's look at this list. They're not the same people who are incredibly powerful are never incredibly self-giving, self-sacrificial, other-centered. But Jesus as a character in a story is incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. My goodness, raising people from the dead, feeding the 5000. He's even listed as a creator of everything. That's that's more powerful than, than Superman. Um And as a character in the story, Jesus is perfectly other-oriented. The thing that totally destroys me, I mean, it just makes me fall on my face and worship him, is that with all that power, he never used his extraordinary powers for his own benefit. It was only for others. Who has that kind of ability and uses it only for the good of others? I can't imagine being that good, and I and I thought about that. I wrote about it, and it and it was some time before I realized that that was one piece among many in which Jesus is really different from every other character in every other story ever told. As I was working on this, I got some help from some friends who said, "You're not the first person to think of this," but. The last time that I can find and still have found that it has been published was in the 1920s. Uh, it goes back a long time. Why it fell out of favor, I have no information to trace. I have no idea why it fell out of favor. Because I think it's a pretty strong argument. I don't know why we lost track of it. But as a way of saying, is this possible that Jesus, the character... Is a product of legend. I, I don't know of. It's one of the strongest arguments I know to say that the legend uh, explanation for the Gospels is is not a strong explanation at all. Um,
0: I did think because as you, I talked about the two different lists, um, and I think you had kind of. You had mentioned because I thought of Superman immediately as as a, as a right. possible counter, and I think you, you did kind of acknowledge mm-hmm. that in the book. Uh, but but one thing you highlighted is that he's sort of an adaptation of the Jesus right. figure.
1: Yeah, right? he he is a Christ <laughs> figure, and I think consciously so in a lot of ways. Plus, the degree to which Jesus had power and G- and and compared to Superman, uh, mm-hmm. Superman f- flies through space. Jesus created space. There's a difference there. Uh, Superman, Mm -hmm. I I can remember reading in, in the old comic books where he used his heat vision to warm up his coffee. Jesus, you know, the devil was right when he said at the end of Jesus' 40 days of fasting, the devil was right when he said you could command these stones to become bread. Jesus could have done that, but he refused. He never used his extraordinary powers for his own benefit. Superman is not that good. He's good, but he's nowhere near that good. So
0: I have, as I was reading it, a couple potential pushbacks came to my mind, and I think they could maybe also help to illustrate, um, because someone listening might understand the basics of what you're saying, the the Mm -hmm. basic overview of it, uh, but they might be thinking, well, what exactly is it that Jesus uh, does that makes him so right. unique um, and that that uniqueness argues for his reality um, so so maybe I'll, I'll start by, by giving you these kind of pushbacks that oh, came I love and it. you can tell yeah. me how, how I hear they, they miss the mark so one is um, I think one could compare this argument unfavorably uh, right, to a, to a mm-hmm. Muslim argument um, I guess I was going to say unfavorably unless you're Muslim in which right. case you think it was a good argument um, which is that the Quran is too beautiful to be of merely human origin um, and it seems that most non muslims would rightly retort that this argument is subjective and unfalsifiable you know how can you say oh, well, the quran 's too beautiful, nothing else is as good as the quran it 's like well that 's kind of just your mm-hmm. opinion man um so so why is what you 're arguing different yeah from that th- kind of
1: there's argument? is a uh, an argument that goes straight from the beauty of the Quran to its truth, and that 's mm-hmm. as you said subjective and it's it 's also a you can argue whether it's that beautiful, and you can also argue whether the beauty of that actually proves its truth. I I think both of those are weak points Mm -hmm. in that argument. This is not the same argument. This is not saying that Jesus is so good a character, he must be true. This is an argument that says that Jesus is so good a character that the legendary development explanation for where his story came from doesn't fit. So, At this point, there are only two explanations for the Gospels on offer. One is that it came about because of true reportage. Another one is that it came about as a result of this legendary development process. So you could say if the legendary development explanation doesn't work, we've only got one other, which is that it must be true. You can get to the truth of the Gospels by eliminating the other possible explanation. But it doesn't go straight there without uh, you know, with you know, go straight to the answer. Do not pass go. It doesn't do that the way the Muslim argument does. It's it's not that kind of an argument at all.
0: Okay, so so the the argument is is kind of more along the lines of um, the the type of figure that we read about as we read about Jesus in the New Testament isn't the kind of figure that we read about right. in fiction.
1: And you know, I've studied other legends, and okay. they all look different. You've you've got characters and by the way jesus is unique in so many ways one of them is his absolutely other centered use of his power uh, he he is so self-giving and and that is just that's that's the point where it leads me to worship but here's another one uh the one that you just mentioned interestingly enough was brought up by a youtube um atheist who goes by the name Paulagia. And he was just laughing, laughing, laughing about how I'd made the Muslim argument uh, mistake. But I, it, it, he just got the argument wrong. The other one that he that he camped on, he apparently didn't realize that I'd camped on it, too, for four pages in my book. Because he'd heard me do this same kind of an interview with an apologist named Frank Turek. And we talked about how Jesus was unique in being a perfect character from beginning to end. There's no character development in Jesus. Hmm. That's kind of weird. You, you don't, you know, his first sermon as recorded, at least in Matthew's timeline, was arguably the best sermon ever told. I don't think that happens with most people who deliver their first sermon. <laughs> um, he, he's, he's perfect from the beginning. He's perfect to the end. Well, Paul Legia heard this. I was talking about that, and he missed the point. And so he started laughing. He said, perfect character, perfect characters are boring. Perfect characters are awful. They're called Mary Sue in in fan fiction. They're called Mary Sues, and they're always bad characters because they're boring. Nobody's interested in them. Somehow he missed the fact that this perfect character isn't boring. There's something about Jesus that even though there's no character development in his story, he is the most compelling person in all of literature history, in all the history of literature. You've got millions and millions and millions of people who are devoted to him, following him, worshiping him 2,000 years later. This is not the same kind of boring character you get in these Mary Sues. This is a this is a character in literature, It's the only character in literature who has no character development and yet is completely captivating now now here's a, th- these are two points of objective fact that that you can look at and say, how did the legendary development process produce that character? when no one else has done it, no one no one else Shakespeare, Goethe Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Chekhov uh twain dickens no, no one produced a character like jesus but this community of faith did good job guys
0: mm-hmm.
1: i'm amazed yeah as uh, yeah or as
0: the uh, as, as the critics would say these semi-literate uh bronze right. age yeah <laughs> fishermen yeah. Yeah. and, and they people, came
1: right. up with a character yeah like, that's pretty interesting. no one else ever hard to explain hmm. well and and I was
0: what you said there may, may also be offered an offer to the, the other piece of pushback I had which was um, you know obviously there have been hagiographies these kind of holy story mm-hmm. stories of holy men uh, written before uh, and kind of more most recently Kim jong-il is said to have gotten a hole in one uh, during his first golf outing uh, so, yeah. and, and the other stories like that, right. These sort of yeah. perfect things that he did. Um, so what makes the gospels different? Why would, uh, why should we see them as historically accurate, but not the obviously false stories about Kim Jong-il and why is it, um, unlikely that those who told the story of Jesus just attributed superlative right. character to him? We kind of, we kind of know that what mm-hmm. these good qualities are, right. And, and we can imagine what it would look like if we heightened them. So why can't right. this be what well? There's
1: there's to Jesus? multiple reasons. One is that the um, the the legendary development process, as proposed by people like Bart Ehrman, is essentially what I think can fairly be called a story scrambler process, because the what Ehrman proposes is that, and he's got this in at least three books, is that the the story develops through the telephone game, <laughs> and he compares it, I think, fairly to uh, to a, you've got the telephone game where one child whispers something in another child's ear. They go around a circle. It's a party game and you laugh at the end when you discover how different the story has become. But then he says, imagine playing the telephone game, not with a group of kids of the same socioeconomic class speaking the same language, the same culture, the same location and everything, but imagine playing it across multiple languages, across multiple regions, multiple and in it, and it's not just third, fourth hand, it's nineteenth hand or worse. What he's describing there, oh, by the way, and then he says, what happens to the stories under those conditions? He says they change. And and I read that and I go, part. Change? No. The, the stories under that kind of extreme telephone game conditions. Don't just change. They get totally distorted, corrupted, scrambled. So so what he's proposing is a story scrambler. And I think it's fair to call it that. But it went out in all different directions. It went through, you know, uh, north of the Mediterranean, south of the Mediterranean, up into Asia Minor. and then and, and then somehow it landed. And it didn't land just in one place like the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Mark. It landed four times in four different places, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They'll say, well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John weren't really the authors. I say, okay, fine. It landed four different written documents. And it landed in the same perfect character in each one of those. Now, the perfection of Jesus isn't just that he was an awfully good person. It's that he was good and he was unique. For example, the no character development thing. The fact that you never see him saying, thus says the Lord. Somebody along that story scrambler route should have had him saying, oh, my goodness. Oh, all the prophets, always they all said, thus says the Lord. Do you know that Jesus never does that? He always speaks from his own authority. He's not quoting anybody. He's not using footnotes. Um. Somewhere in that story scrambler process, something like that should have slipped in. Something should have slipped in where he made a mistake. Something should have slipped in where, here's the one that really, really surprises people. I don't know if anyone else who's asked this question. I keep wanting to find it. If you know of anyone else who's asked this question, please let me know. Why does the Bible never say that Jesus had faith? It's not in there. Somebody, and and I'll have a, I have a theory for why it's not in there. Somebody along the story scrambler route should have said, oh my goodness, Jesus taught faith more than he taught any other single thing, more than he taught love, more than he taught anything. We better have him having faith. How can he teach faith if he doesn't have faith? Let's put it in there. It's not in there. I think it's not in there in a word because God doesn't have faith in God. It's the wrong word to use for his relationship with the Father. Uh, not that he didn't trust the Father, but just that it's a, it, it's, it's a word that you use when there's a little bit of uncertainty. And Jesus didn't have that level, the, even that little bit of uncertainty. He just had total direct trust in the Father. But somebody should have said he had faith. Why didn't they? In all of those four routes that it took to those four landing places. These are the kinds of things that do mm-hmm. not match the story scrambler hypothesis that I think I've fairly labeled it as that the atheists are proposing. Yeah. And so I was thinking about that. The, um,
0: so there is. Uh, you, you could make an argument, although I don't think many people do, that Paul says something like that in Galatians when he mm-hmm. talks about the pistis Christu, which is either, can be translated as either faith in Christ, uh, uh, faith right. of Christ, or faithfulness of Christ. I think the faith of Christ is, is the least right. uh, accepted <laughs> reading, and contextually it doesn't make a lot of sense, but I, I just throw that out there as a, sure. as a kind and of and it's not in say. the
1: Gospels at any um, rate. But, but yeah, I, I yeah. think that
0: that's probably not what Paul's saying. Yep. That's true. It's also not in the Gospels. Yeah. It's also not in the Gospels. But I also don't think that's what Paul's saying. So, um, yeah. And so, you know, it's really interesting as as you were, as you were talking about that, uh, you know, the early view of Jesus seems to be pretty unified. Um, And and I I think the earliest, um, you know, uh, document that I can think of that sort of takes a different view would be the Gospel of Thomas, uh, which is, second century. I know some people want to push a little earlier and you could also push John a little later and put them a little closer together. Uh, but John seems to be following the what's mm-hmm. in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark and Luke, they're the earliest documents and they're in wide agreement. Um, and so it's interesting to think about because ultimately, the creation of the Jesus story would have to have been pretty centralized. It's hard to imagine, as you said, it happening through telephone, because you would have these very kind of wildly mm-hmm. distinct views of Jesus and what what i think we we can't say about the early church is that they had a central this like centralized authority where nothing could get out uh or you couldn't have these divisions um and so that 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 is really interesting that that these these early documents in the early church um seem to have a pretty unified view of who jesus was and um and all that's happening so the gospels are written within a generation of jesus so you have all this lead up and tradition That goes forward. And um, so, yeah, there's so many
1: facets of this, too. One of them that I didn't put in the book, I I kind of came close to it in the book, is that Jesus is unique in the sense that he had strengths that didn't without the accompanying weaknesses. I'll, I'll give you an example. You're familiar with the phrase for every strength, there's a weakness. And you can imagine a person or you Mm -hmm. could think of a person, maybe a boss you had, maybe a political figure that you do not like. Uh, A person who is really, really confident in himself, really convinced of his own opinions, really Mm -hmm. sure that he's on the right track and really, really just not interested in hearing what other people think he should think, not not interested in others' opinions on what he should do. Um, you think of that person, whoever you got in your head, whether it's a boss or um, whatever. Now, you know that there's going to be a weakness that goes with that. By the way, strength of conviction is a strength, provided that you're not stupid and mm-hmm. wrong, by the way. Strength of conviction is a strength, <laughs> but the weakness that goes with it is I don't give a you-know-what about that other person. I don't care about that other person. Hmm. Jesus had strength of conviction. Um, the people in Nazareth wanted him to be their hometown boy in and, and, uh, Luke 4. And he said, and the first thing he said in response to that was, God came to care for the Gentiles. They got so mad when he said that, and I'm really compressing the story here, but they got so mad they wanted to throw him off a cliff. His family wanted him to come home. People wanted him to become the king of, of the Jews uh, politically. Peter told him not to go to Jerusalem and die, for his, uh, for, for, uh, die on the cross. People wanted to control his life, and he only listened to his own opinions. He didn't ask anybody their opinion unless it was to teach them what the truth really was. That sounds like a really self-centered type of a guy, if you're thinking about the boss or the political figure. But Jesus was also the most other-centered person in all of history. He had the strength without the weakness. That's really hard to do in literature, much less in life. How did these story-scrambler people come up with that? There's just so many questions. How did they come up with a person like that? I don't know.
0: Yeah, well, and and I think in the first article maybe that you had written sort of about this idea, uh, if I remember correctly, was for Touchstone, the gospel truth of Jesus, what happens to apologetics. Mm -hmm. if We add legend to the trilemma, liar, lunatic, or lord. And that's a reference to see what C.S. Lewis said, that Jesus, you can't just say he's a nice guy or whatever, or a person with interesting ideas, because he claimed to have this incredible authority. So he was either a liar or crazy, or you had to say he was the Lord. And of course, uh, atheists and skeptics have introduced a fourth possibility that he was a legend. And essentially what you're arguing is there's just not enough data uh, to to support the legend theory. It doesn't really work. Uh, because you have this historical reality, you have these traditions, you have these documents. and Right. It's, it it's not just that we
1: don't category. have enough data to support it. It's that the data we have contradicts it. We have an effect, the four written mm. uh, versions of the story of Christ, that do not fit the cause that they've proposed. The cause has to fit the effect. Or else, you know, if you say that, um, you know, I, I dropped the pen, therefore it wrote the Gospels. You're saying, no, that's just, that cause doesn't produce that effect. Well, I'm going to argue, and I do argue in this book, that the story-scrambling, legendary approach, that that wrote the Gospels, that doesn't fit the the effect either.
0: Fit it either. Yeah. You had mentioned uh, uh, Bart Ehrman earlier, and um, uh, he's a, uh agnostic textual critic, and, uh, you know, skeptic, obviously. Um, and he has, you know, ma- made a pretty decent living, uh, not, not just as a as an academic, uh, but sort of bringing uh, academic ideas sort of down mm-hmm. to the down to the lower shelf, where people can get them. But obviously, with his kind of skeptical approach. Um, and uh, after his first, you know, really successful book on that, uh, I think it was did the Bible mis- misquoting Jesus where he was arguing that te- from a textual critical perspective that the Bible didn't really reflect who Jesus was. He's since gone on to write about the problem of evil and all these other things that aren't really in his wheelhouse, but but they sort of fall into the category mm-hmm. of a smart guy writing about why you shouldn't believe in Jesus. Um, but he, he had a, a debate with Robert Price, uh, Robert Price, I always want to call him Richard Price, Robert Price, um, who uh, is a not just a, a skeptic of, of the Gospels, he thinks Jesus never existed. And, and Ehrman wrote a whole book, essentially having to sort of say, "Well, that's just crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus obviously existed." And what was so fascinating about the debate is they're really these two atheists or agnostics or whatever you want to call them, uh, arguing about whether or not Jesus existed. One thinks he did; one thinks he didn't. And Price, the uh, you know the, the skeptic of Jesus' existence. He argued that Jesus was purely legendary because his story couldn't have been built up around a simple rabbi. He thought that was just incredible to believe that, um, uh, you know, this idea of this this figure that you've described could have just started from this kind of apocalyptic Jew. Um, and Ehrman's contrary argument in this debate was that the historical evidence for Jesus is so strong that you can't deny he existed. And it seemed to me that the solution was right in front of them. Jesus is historical, but he must have been oh, more than a simple rabbi. And yeah, <laughs> I feel like that's, that's sort right. of what I you're, had not what seen you're that arguing, debate.
1: Right? I am familiar with both uh those characters, but I have not, I did not hear that, but I love the way you pulled that together. Yeah. The, the story could not have grown yeah. out of the life of a simple rabbi. That is for sure. Jesus is... He's actually, he's more disturbing than the legend should have made him in, in in many ways. The passage in John 15, where he says, no longer do I call you servants, but I've called you friends. Christians in America, boy, do we love that. I am a friend of God. That's Hillsong. Um, we, we sing you know, almost this boyfriend Jesus kind of worship music. But we missed the verse where he also says in that same paragraph, you are my friends. If you do what I command, that's not a normal friendship. You know, Cody, you and I have been friends for, for some years. We've Mm -hmm. had some good times together. Um, we're doing this over online right now. We could have met in between. This is actually easier to produce, but, um, but if either one of us said to, a, said to the other, you know, boy, it's great being, it's just great that we can be friends and you can be my friend if you do what I command. That would be weird. That would be wrong. Mm. Jesus did that and he got away with it. Why? Because he really was different. He, he had the authority. Or think of, think of you know, if, if you invited me to come to be a, a guest speaker at your church. And and I come in there and I and I open up with just some words of niceness and encouragement, and and then I really launch into the meeting. I say, now, the first thing I want you to know is that I'm not here to to abolish the Bible. That's essentially what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now, what guest speaker is mm-hmm. going to? come in and say that who's going to, who's going to let him stay on the platform after he does that, especially when he goes on to say, I haven't come to abolish the Bible. I've come to fulfill it. That's, that's, that's downright strange. We've lost touch with how strange that is. My goodness to say, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets for most of us would be like standing at the foot of Mount Zion with a pickaxe saying, don't worry, I'm not going to chop the whole thing down. But Jesus, apparently there was something about him where people would be thinking, is he going to take away the whole thing? And he had to reassure them that he wasn't. They saw that authority in him. That's very unusual. That's not what happens in legends. There's so many of these things yeah. Yeah, I was going yeah. to say, you'd either have to be a cult leader
0: or you'd have to yeah. be for real. You'd have, to, you'd have to be a liar or a lunatic or the Lord, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's fascinating. Well, uh, Tom, I, 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 is there anything you kind of... I think we're at a pretty good stopping point, but is there anything else you want to say? Uh, and I was—I told mm-hmm. people the book is uh, paperback and Kindle. Um, it's a great book. They should really get a hold of it. Yeah, yeah, I've, and, I've mentioned this briefly, but you know,
1: I, there are two really, I think, powerful aspects. They made the book difficult to structure, actually, is that the first part of the book, you can mm-hmm. read it, and as many people, including J.P. Moreland, professor at Biola University, have said it caused them to fall more in love with Jesus because they saw him in a light that they had never seen him before. Hmm. Um, we didn't mention the way that I, I came to this. A lot of what this was about was what Jesus didn't do. He didn't say, um, uh, he didn't say, Thus says the Lord. He didn't use his extraordinary power for his own benefit. He never said our father, but only my father except for when he told the disciples to say it. There's a lot of things he didn't do. And you when you look at Jesus in that light, you see him in a different way. You fall more in love with him. But then there's also the fact that, okay, um, I fall more in love with him. What if it isn't true? And we've got the aspect in there that it really, really confirms the fact that it's true. I have fallen more in love with Jesus in the process of writing this and talking about it and sharing it and so on. And I, and I hope other people can too. And know that he's for real and stay strong in him. And if you want to, by the way, get a taste of what this is about, you can go to my blog at ThinkingChristian, thinkingchristian.net, and you will see pop up there an opportunity to sign up for email and you can download an entire chapter of the book and get a taste of his uniqueness as I presented in the book. If you go to thinkingchristian.net, it's right there waiting for you.
0: Thank you so much, Tom, for making time to do this. I'm glad we got to talk.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's been, been, been a little fun fun bit. It's good, it's Cody, little I really talk. appreciate it. I appreciate you. I have appreciated your writings. The book that you mentioned, the project that you mentioned, sounds kind of fun. So we'll have to talk about that. Hmm.